This is To Catch a Con Man, Season 2, in the victim's voices. I will take you on another fascinating journey, but this time you will hear from other men and women that, like me, have fallen prey to the various cons, scams, and deceits by one of the most prolific and successful con artists to live and operate in the Midwest. You know him as Ricky Dugo. Could a hundred grand sustain my life? It couldn't even come close. So, so listen to me. If I was going to be in some sort of a con, scam, conniving thing, it'd be for millions. It wouldn't be for a hundred thousand dollars. To Catch a Con Man is brought to you by Studio 847 in Long Grove, Illinois. Listener discretion is advised, as some of this programming contains language and content that might be offensive to some listeners. Join me on this adventure to catch a con man. This is Adam Albin. so thankful for all of the love and support I have received about this podcast, To Catch a Con Man. On the previous episode, you heard part one of Scott's detailed story of being victimized and conned by one of his new neighbors, a man you have come to know as Ricky Dugo. Scott had the courage to reach out to the con by Rick at gmail.com email box and has since been with me in the background helping to get Ricky Dugo convicted. Coming up next, part two of Scott's Amazing Story. communicating to others that know me that he knows it's me and I'm, and I'm like literally laughing I'm like that's fantastic because I just shared the baby um, because it was one of those like hey heads up this this is a real thing there's a there's a page out here that, that kind of you know whatever um, and again whether or not I share it through the, the actual link you know share this or at the time maybe it was just a screenshot I don't recall but anyway uh, it was just one of those, like, I'm going to reinforce the message that I've been telling people already, but, you know, why would I share a page that wasn't mine, I guess. But anyway, uh, yeah, I heard that he was really pissed and, you know, basically he was going to the police and, and all this other stuff. And I just thought it was hilarious because, you know, I, I'm in tech. I've been in IT forever. And, you know, I knew nothing that, first of all, I didn't create it to begin with. But even if I had, you know, there was nothing that could trace it back to me because, you know, there's no IP or, or anything that was going to come my way. And also, you know, I don't know what the law is around creating a spoof page, but, you know, plenty of people do it. And I don't really think they're, they're going to be too worried about, you know, a con artist's, you know, page getting put out there, you know, alerting people of a scam that's, you know, real. Correct. Yeah, there was no way to, for him to trace me 
because I was coming through a VPN. So I could have been bouncing off of, you know, North Korea for all he knew. Like, so, um, but okay, keep on going. So, um, so after, you know, you and I start communicating, I do remember you kept insanely meticulous notes. I actually have a copy of your notes um, that you um, uh, were so nice to allow me to, to, to keep in view. And, and I have gone back through and looked at your Excel document. It was impressive. I'm going to tell you straight up for, for $6,000, uh, that spreadsheet uh, definitely um, was worth it. <laughs> it was pretty awesome to see. Um, well, I, I did it because, by the way, I shared it with him. Um, I literally wanted him to know how many times he changed dates and that, you know, if he worked for me, he would have been fired on the third date change. Um, it would have been on a performance review on the second date change. And he was on like 14 or 15 date changes. So, you know, it was almost comical to just try to, you know, debate with him uh, in his own game. Uh, I knew it. Like I said, I, I knew I was getting the money back. So, like, it was one of those take a little stress out of my life and add it to his. So I just really tried to make his life as miserable as I could, you know, by sort of, you know, countering all of his arguments. And my favorite, by the way, to your point was you had said in in your podcast, and we hadn't had that exchange at that point, that he he changed his story and he forgot about the phones and he talked about something else. Microwaves. He he yeah, he did the same thing to me. And again, it was refrigerators. He must have had refrigerators hung in his head because whatever it was, but it was, I'm going to get your refrigerators delivered to you. And I was like, what? You know, <laughs> holy shit, you just acknowledged that you you can't keep your own life straight. Um, and I think that would have been probably, you know, a few weeks before my final, like, cease and desist because I was just like, all right, at this point, it's not really fun anymore because he's not even good at it anymore. Like, he's getting caught in his own lies. Uh, by the way, I did one of the, your coworker was probably the last person who I found out in our neighborhood had been taken by him. We, we had connected at some point, you know, just on a walk. And uh, he was like, just, well, we'll skip ahead for a second. But the day he was arrested, I mean, he was doing heel clicks. It was, it was fantastic. So that was fun. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so you reach out. I mean, are you expecting anything back? I mean, were you thinking I was actually going to get back to you? You know, I, I genuinely did. I thought one of two things. One, you know, you're just Rick. You know, and you're just trying to see who's going to come forward or whatever and identify themselves as somebody who's, you know, trying to take them down. And, uh, like, the risk of that to me was zero because he already knew who I was. So I was like, you yeah, know, it's fine if he knows I'm, you know, happy to help. Um, and, and then the other side was it wasn't going to go anywhere. So, you know, I felt like there's only upside if somebody was really out there trying to, you know, do the right thing and I could help in any small way. I didn't want to, we'll, we'll save this point for a minute, but I didn't want to get too involved because I'd already let it go. You know, and one of my things is, you know, we all kind of have negative experiences in our lives and we all treat them different ways and some you can't let go of and there's been plenty of those that, you know, I still hang on to like anybody who, you know, is a human being and occasionally has a mental health challenge. This was one where I was like, it's just not enough for me to stay up at night about. But if I can you know, spend a little bit of time and it's important to somebody else, let's do it. And so, you know, 
Fast forward, we would go meet for coffee. Yeah, we went to a Starbucks. It was a hot uh, Sunday. It was in June. Um, I want to say it was like June, it was about June 3rd, maybe. Um, I have it all written down. Uh, we went, and I remember we met like at about 2.30, 3 o'clock or thereabouts. It was towards the early afternoon. Um, I remember what I ordered, six shot, all ice Americano, no water. Um, basically, shits, you know, six shots of espresso, and and you know, it, it was funny because I didn't know you, I had never met you, but I felt like I knew you, um, just in like the first couple minutes of, of sitting down with you. Um, so you know, first impressions, at least for me, where I like, you know, I I, I I like this guy. He brought he brought great notes. He's got you know a spreadsheet. Um, you and I did have a mutual connection. We actually probably had more than uh, one or two. So I, I definitely felt like we had had the opportunity to kind of vet each other. Um, so you go to the meeting and then and, and, and you gave me probably the best piece of advice anybody has given me this whole, this whole time. And it was, Adam, don't let this get the best of you. Make this a hobby. Don't let him consume you. Make this a hobby. And I still use that phrase today um, when I tell people, like, you know, that life goes on. You know, if you want to do something, make it a hobby. Don't obsess over it. And I hope that people do not think I obsess over this. I absolutely do not obsess over this. Um, You certainly were very passionate. Passionate, yes. Correct. Yeah, without sharing my own personal experience, you know, I, I had an experience that paralleled kind of where I saw you at that time. And, you know, it was something that I felt like I got, you know, too obsessed over for a period of time. You know, you want to right the wrongs, you want to do certain things. And, you know, at some point I found in, in my situation, which was very different, but I had to just eventually come to terms and let things go. And I was worried that this could be something that could consume you. And I remember just thinking to myself, you know, man, you know, if you could do this, like I said, as a hobby, and some good could come of it, you know, best case scenario, you just make more people aware and that's a few less people that could, you know, be hurt by them. I, it never occurred to me for a second that you'd see it through as far as you did. Um, and I remember, you know, when, when you know, cause everybody kind of knows how the story ends, that like, holy shit, like he got him. Like, cause there's no chance and we can talk about that at the end of this, but there's no chance that he was ever getting caught. You know, there's one of these things with the way the laws are written and, and to your point on jurisdictions and all this stuff. So it can't even be cumulative because it's all individual spot crimes. Like I, I, in my head, I was like, maybe you managed to get, you know, something on the record, you know, where at least there's the police are aware of it. That was the best case scenario. I mean, I really thought like, Hey, shit, maybe, maybe even gets arrested, you know, for, you know, a four-hour period of time in Burnham Hills, and, you know, they process him, and he's back out the door. I really thought that was the best we could hope for. Yeah, and I and I totally appreciate that. Um, you know, but what happened, Scott, was that spoof page traveled further and farther and wider than I ever knew. Because by the end of that spoof page being up, within like six days... I had accumulated 17 different victims. And some of those victims, you know, 
they they may have been some of your neighbors, but some of them did not want to cooperate. They did not want to be involved. And I kind of want to touch on that as well, because you do have neighbors or you had some old neighbors in that neighborhood that were victims that did not want to cooperate. Um, eventually, they didn't they didn't want to be involved. And and do you think that was because of their status, you know, in in yeah, the in the district? I mean, there's a lot of reasons. I, yeah, I think we could all speculate, right? So yes, yeah, we're absolutely involved with or connected, um, you know, school boards or you know various factors. Maybe they thought there could be a conflict of interest. You know, for many, I'm sure it's just you know plain old embarrassment. You know, it's not not fun to you know acknowledge that you were taken on. You know, like I said, in hindsight, what really looks like a pretty stupid thing. Like you do feel foolish. Um, it's a little embarrassing because you know we're like I've met you. I know you're not a stupid person. I've other neighbors. You know, these people are smart. They they make a good living. So it, it is embarrassing when you're you know a, a well-established professional out there who should know better. And you have to acknowledge it in an open space that you didn't. Um, that, that wasn't easy to do. But I, I think, you know, once you sort of came to terms with the fact that that's the worst thing that was going to happen was a little bit of embarrassment. And the other side of it is, you know, letting people know and, and potentially, you know, like I said, preventing one person from getting scammed is a good thing. You know, I wouldn't find out until all the work you did how much damage this guy actually had done and the lives he devastated because... You know, for what he did to you and I, it was, I'm not going to say insignificant, but it, it did not transform our lives in any meaningful way from a financial perspective. It hurt, it stung, it, it was way more about the morality of it, the violation of trust, all of the other things that went with it. And I know for me, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm guessing similarly for you at some point. It was just, you know, this is not okay. And, you know, somebody who tries to and, and none of us do it as much as we'd like but tries to give back you know in various ways and, and through philanthropy and other stuff like you know i've been sort of taken advantage of and, and in sort of global volunteer situations where you're trying to help somebody or sponsor somebody in a developing country and you find out later it's not really going where it's supposed to because you kind of know there's the risk associated with it and then you're just like okay so i'm not going to put i'm not going to throw good money after bad this was so different to me. This was up close, personal, shake hands with my wife, you know, hug my wife at a flamingo. Like this, that's where the violation came in. Like don't have our families connect and then think it's okay to, you know, consider that person a target. I, I find it to be wild. Um, the sociopathic nature of this man and how he lacks all feeling and empathy and um, he could it's be a lack of empathy that's just overwhelming. Yeah. So um, let's let, let's let's talk a little bit about um, at our uh, at our Starbucks meeting. Um, you and I kind of talked about you know where we wanted to go next because I didn't have a whole lot of buy-in at that time. You were the first. Well, okay, you were the second in-person. Um, guy that I had met outside of my coworker, but my coworker was, um, he was pretty hesitant about really wanting to do anything at the start. I really had to push him in a, in a certain direction and eventually he was on board, but you were the first one that was really 
on board and made a commitment to me to be able, you're like, you know, sure, man, I'll do whatever, whatever you need, you know, um, I'm, I'm there. And, and, and it meant a lot. Um, and it gave me, it actually gave me the balls to actually that later that day, I ended up going to Vernon Hills and filing the police report. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't think we've ever talked. Did you, I remember you had something going on that night and I felt the need to go like right then and there. I felt like we had established something. We had some momentum. Um, I think you had dinner plans uh, with your family. Yeah, we were, we were go- I don't remember exactly what it was, but I remember it being a tight window. And, and I honestly, I, I thought when I, when I left my house, I'm like, I'm going to go and just hand all this material over to somebody. And it's probably going to, you know, kind of like a dealer at the table, you know, you clap your hands and you walk away. I really wasn't expecting there to be anything beyond that. So I will say you're obviously a good salesman in the sense because you, you did ask, you know, if I would be willing to talk to a detective and others. Um, I just wasn't in a position to do it that day. So, and, and frankly, I wasn't even thinking about it when I was driving to that Starbucks. I was thinking, like I said, I was going to give you as much material as I could and, and kind of arm you and then... I felt like my job had already been done because, like I said, I'd been trying to get the word out for so long. And I was just sort of, you know, it was behind me. I, you know, I was, I was moving on. So it was a little surprising to me. And I was like, yeah, I guess I'll talk to a detective if he calls. We were talking about um, Starbucks and how you thought that your job was done. Um, yeah, your job was not done, Scott. Um, tell me about what happened next. So, and you're, again, at the time, you didn't know what was going to happen next either because you were just going to the police station. So For sure. It was, you know, we, we kept in touch via text, you and I, but there was some time that passed. Because um, I did talk to, I'm not going to name names because even if I do, I'll probably get them wrong. But I did talk to, I believe, I think the only person I ever really spoke to, I don't think it was Vernon Hills, I think it was Lake County. Um, and so I, I bet it was a month or two, right? before I actually would end up getting a call from anybody. And then what was interesting was I didn't get a call at first. Talk about intimidating. It was a, it was like a Lake County investigator. I, again, I don't know the title. Yeah. And then yeah, the detective. Was, yeah, detective and like, yeah. yeah. Detective Bill Bang. Yeah. It was Detective Bill Bang. Okay. And then there was a Tony Thies involved. Is that right? Am I getting a name right there or is that wrong? Yeah, that's correct. Tony would have come. You must have been in, in the fall. Tony uh, was there. The first time I met Tony was at the over here, which is the wire. That's August 21st. And that's like the first time he was involved in the case. So, yeah, you're probably in that uh, that late so summer. I think he was the guy. I don't think it was Bill. I think it was Tony. Because I remember I still have his card. Because um, I remember like when we were, were preparing for the trial and everything, I wanted to make sure I had all my ducks in a row. So his card kind of stuck out. I just kind of stapled it to a file. But anyway, we, irrespective of who it was, it was a little intimidating. Like two people just show up at your door and you know introduce themselves. And I didn't even make a connection to Rick Dugo at that point. I'm like, oh my God, like a kid was kidnapped. You know, something in my car was associated with a crime or like who knows? You know, right. It starts going through your head. And I got a crystal clean record. I mean, so I, you know, that was my first instinct. Anyway, so they they came in and we spoke for a bit and then they asked me if i'd come in and and give like kind of an official you know account of whatever it was uh and we ended up 
figured it all out and, and ended up getting you know my statement but um it, it took a while and i remember you know in your podcast you talked about how slowly things turned that was my first experience in seeing how slowly things turned because i, I gave a statement and it was radio silence like forever like i heard from you a few times i never heard anything from them and again i didn't really have a horse in the race because they kind of kept saying that the way this was going anything that i might be involved with like the statute of limitations would run out you know they're pretty transparent about it i will give them credit for never kind of creating a, a false expectation but i was shocked at how long things took i mean each time i would be in touch with them again it was like i had forgotten about it all over again like again i moved on i forgot that this thing was even i just thought maybe the case was dropped yeah i mean it, it the perfect storm is one yeah you were in touch with them for various reasons i was just sort of like a support witness yeah there was really no obligation to keep me in the loop no um but there were three four five six months you know swaths of time that happened where it was radio silence um um, did they download your phone? This is all pre-COVID, by the way. Yeah, this is all so pre-COVID. Yeah, this is all silence pre-COVID. silence was not because the government shut down. It was just silence. Yeah. When you went in to Lake County and you gave your statement, did they download your phone? No, because I had already done it. Um, they had asked me if, if I could, and I was like, you know, because I, I, I had Tony's email. And I was like, did you check your email? Because I already sent you everything. Um and I just had software that could pull, you know, individual text threads out of uh, a phone. And so I asked him, like, if, if, if timestamps there, if you need to authenticate it in any way, you know, I've got the backup of my phone. If you want the backup to just, you know, show that this is not, you know, anything manipulated in any way, the text or the raw text. And, you know, they were able to verify the file and that it was, you know, exact and untouched and it was good enough for them. Great. Um... All right, so there's radio silence, uh, and that's basically 2018 to 2019. You're so it's always bothered me that that when Rick is finally charged, you know, and again this he's he's actually charged in 2021. Um, you know, your case and the neighbors that that also wanted to participate those statutes of limitations had run out. Um, so when you see charges, but you don't see that, like your case or any, you know, all the stuff that you've done in the background, did that hurt you? I mean, I, I, it seems like, you know, you kind of thought maybe it wasn't going to happen, but, but didn't it like bother you that like, it did. Yeah. It did. No, hundred percent. Cause actually I didn't know for certain nobody gave me the dates they, they they said statutes were running out i don't think i knew for sure until kevin barrel reached out and asked if i was willing to testify and at that point you know i was like well absolutely but i thought i was going to be testifying on behalf of myself kind of thing and he was like hey heads up you know you're not actually involved here you're just going to be part of, of helping demonstrate the pattern i'm like wait 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 I was involved. And then that's when he informed me of the statute of limitations had run up. And I was like, really? So it, it did bother me. It didn't create any pause for a second. Cause I was like, you know what, at this point it didn't, didn't matter. Like if we could get them, I just wanted them, you know, 
I wanted to provide any support that, that could be provided because at this point, you know, if, if you had taken it this far, like I could show up for an hour or two and try to, you know, help establish that pattern. Because I felt like at that point, the way Kevin had described it was, it was essential that, and we didn't know at the time, by the way, that it was going to be a, a, a bench trial. I just remember this, we were still putting the case together and, you know, the logistics hadn't all been worked out. I think there were multiple cases involved, but that I could, you know, help establish that he had been running the similar con and, and that the text thread paralleled so eerily familiar to other stories that it was going to potentially help establish that pattern. Once I heard that, I was like, done, you know, yeah. just let me know where I need to be. So I'm happy to do it. So, you know, you brought something up about five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, and we are going to touch on that. You were one of the other act witnesses. You were one of the few that got to literally sit in front of Ricky Dugo and tell a story. Um, and I know how that made me feel. Um, it, it, I, I think I would have felt the same if it wasn't the state versus Ricky Dugo in, in, like pertaining to my case, if it was to do that for somebody else. I'm so thankful that you were. But the importance of that motion, again, that's the other acts motion that Kevin Barrow filed. And that motion was so key. The whole case hinged on that because if we didn't have the ability to bring in other witnesses, other people that would testify under oath, victims that would testify under oath, that these were the identical crimes. These are This is the identical pitch. These are the identical text. This is a rinse and repeat crime here. It was so instrumental in getting that motion approved um, by, you know, by the judge. Without that, I don't know if we would be talking right now. Um, so I'm thankful. As you know, I don't live in Illinois anymore, but if I did and Kevin ran for office, I don't care what party he ran for. I don't care if I was with that party or not. I would vote for that guy. And I know that there were gaps and, and there were things that could have been done better by the county as a whole. But I have the utmost respect for him. And I would just want, you know, if there's a voice and there's an audience, I would want people to know. I mean, I think he was brilliant in his strategy. And also, by the way, incredible just what I, you know, nobody likes being called a victim, but an incredible victim advocate in the sense of like, just helping you prepare uh, without, you know, changing your story in any way whatsoever. Like he literally just helped you understand what the system was gonna do. You know, here's how it works. We have to do all this logistics stuff. We have to be able to describe, you know, the, the, the sort of chain of evidence of this text thread and, and all this other, you know, just legal jargon. But at the end of the day, it was still just a way to facilitate telling your story without sort of violating the rules of testimony. Um, I thought he and, and I think Russell was the other. Was it Russ? Yeah, Russell Kasky. I call him young Russell yeah. Kasky. Yeah. Yes. I thought both of them did a brilliant job. I, I was very impressed. I absolutely echo yeah. that same sentiment. I thought they both were amazing um, especially, you're right, you said it brilliantly, advocates for justice, advocates for victims and, and people that um, may not have ever testified before. Um, you know, so 
I'm with you. I, I, I believe firmly that they are the stars of this show. I think Lake County had some missteps along the way early on. It wasn't due to the investigators. It wasn't due to the eventual prosecutors. There was just a string of events and, and things that happened that just fell out of favor um, to the victims that were out there, the victims like you that had their statutes of limitations expire. You know, um, it's always, I've always struggled with that, Scott, because we would have had, if this would have been charged in 2018, 2019, even 2020, early 2020, we would have had with your neighbors and the people that I had like 20 to 30 total charges. Um, so it, it would have made a big difference um, the burden to for him to prove innocence when you have 17 people or let's just call it eight or nine people with cases would have been that much harder for him to wiggle out of. Um, so it's, by the way, I'm, I'm looking forward to when we get to the trial part because that was, that was probably my favorite part of uh, my experience anyway. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, no, and and, and, exactly and right. I that, think that would have been nice to have more people be a part of it because it did feel you did feel the weight of the responsibility of the testimony because you know I knew that there were only three other act witnesses and so it was you know relatively small subset a significant very small subset of the people that he had done damage to right so let's talk about that let's it's a perfect segue let's talk about the trial cats out of the bag scott's one of the other act witnesses um you know talk to me about the trial you know you go through some prep with kevin and and russell well, so first of all, I got to talk about the, the day I was supposed to testify because this is funny, right? So you had brought it up in your podcast. They, they brought it up to me as part of the instructions, but it was like, you do not interact with anybody when you walk in and out of that courtroom. Like, it's just a straight up, you know, whatever. So I'm told to go on, I think it was February 2nd. I, I don't, it doesn't matter. By the way, I, I was given the same dates as you as all the other ones where I was supposed to show up in, you know, early December and then that got pushed. And so I was involved in all the same postponements obviously as you were but what was interesting was i i was told to come to court you know the day that you were testifying and at some point there was a brief recess and and you walked out you just felt stoic as hell and i feel like we exchanged glances for a second um and i knew like okay we can't, we can't talk to each other so anyway then you went back in the courtroom and it was like an hour and a half later uh who's the who's not not Kevin or Russ. There was a, a woman who was kind of helping sort of keep us all in check. And oh, uh, the victim, me. yeah, victim's advocate, Melissa Burke. She was fantastic. Melissa. Yeah. Melissa was amazing. So it's just super, you know, engaging and very understanding about delays and, and everything else. So she comes out and she's like, listen, I, we didn't plan for this, but the cross-examination with Adam has taken a long time. And all I can think was, oh, that sucks. <laughs> like, hey, I got to drive home and I got to come back again tomorrow. But I got to tell you, there was a big part of you that's like, wow, that's just brutal. Like, seriously, like, how long could this guy be on the stand? And what can they possibly be challenging him with? Like, anyway, you yeah. know, that's... Yeah, I, I appreciate... I felt like I got a pretty good perspective from, from the podcast, but it's crazy. I mean, what did they have you in cross-exam for, like, a half a day? No, cross-examination was about an hour and a half but it was like nonstop. It was it was barrages of. I mean, you you were there. I don't want to say the attorney's name. I call him the big bad attorney from the city. Um, 
you know what he did to you. I, I, and I know that you deflected. You probably deflected a lot of it better than I did. Well, I didn't have as much to talk about, right? Remember, you were the center of the case. So I, I had a very, I had a much easier job than you, but by a lot, for a lot of different reasons. But but they did block uh, like two hours for my cross-exam, which I remember thinking, and I thought at the time you were up there for four. So I didn't realize that, but I was like, oh my God, two hours. Like my whole prosecutorial story was like 90 minutes which as you know is just this long arduous walk through every detail and every single thing so you know i figured the cross exam should be you know a lot shorter anyway they they booked an hour and a half for it so fortunately we didn't need anywhere near that but that was based on what i i was expecting a nightmare scenario so not have but real quick if you've ever seen the SNL where Kate McKinnon is like, you know, taken up into space and then there's the other folks around her and they all have a very different experience because she gets like anally probed and all these other things. And everybody else is like, no, I went to heaven and it was bliss. I got the, <laughs> I went to heaven and it was bliss and, and you got the anal probe. Thank Sorry, you. No, no, thank you. It's I, a great SNL if you've never seen it. I'll, I will absolutely watch it as soon as we're done. Um, okay. You'll, yeah, it was. The yeah, there's no doubt. Um, it was rough. Um, but let, let, let's talk about you know you're, you're you're obviously Russell and Kevin have prepared you well. Um, they've given you the framework for what they believe you know the burden of the state is. They're preparing you. Obviously, you're going to go in. You're going to testify. You're going to tell the truth. You know, had it, it. How did it go? I mean, like you know, they they start out and and and. They're asking you the like, similar questions, I take it, like, you know, um, tell us about how you know Ricky Dugo, what do you do for a living, you know, all of these things, right? Um, yeah, they get the, the, the basic ones down first, but you can tell there was, there was two main objectives he had. One was, why didn't I go to the police? And, and that was so simple, right? I mean, I think he felt like there was going to be more to that than it was. But, you know, from my perspective, and it's, it's almost my text thread explained it almost for me so it was just easy for me to reinforce that hey this was just a local guy who was committing you know from what i had thought at the time was basically petty theft i didn't know what the story had built to and so that's exactly what i said which i think some of it was objected to because of hearsay or whatever but you know i, I said wh- what i knew at the time was it was you know a few thousand dollars or you know a little more than that but it wasn't you know this this grand scheme and so i never went you know to the police because it it didn't seem like it would have gone anywhere and i had experience with identity fraud and other things and and nobody ever you know does anything um and and so he then was you know ready to pounce on well it wasn't until adam reached out he wasn't that right when you were willing to you know have a conversation with the police and i was like yeah Absolutely, because at that point I understood there was a pattern going on and that I wasn't the only one involved. So I think he was hoping that, like, you had somehow sold me on going to the police to make the story bigger than it was. Um, But it allowed me to say that we spoke about it being the exact same plan a year apart. So I don't think that went well for him. Because really it just reinforced the pattern which was the whole reason I was there to begin with. And he sort of shut that line of questioning down pretty quickly because, like I said, I I think it helped the prosecution way more than it helped him. And then the second thing, and I think he really thought he was going to be able to discredit me on this, and it was kind of a Hail Mary on his part, was 
He was like, did your wife know about the investment? I'm like, actually, she did. He's like, well, you know, at this point in your testimony, you said that you told Rick that your wife had found out money was missing, which was an exact exchange I had had with Rick in text. Um, and, and he thought, you know, he was going to catch me in this big lie. I'm like, well, you know, my wife's not here, so she can't testify, you know, to this. But we had made the decision together, but Rick didn't know that. We were told never to talk to anybody about it because Rick said it would put the deal in jeopardy. So I used that as a lever to put pressure on him because my wife knew his wife. Yeah, it's awesome. And so that more or less ended. Like they had booked me for an hour and a half. I was up and down in like 14 minutes. Yeah. It was crazy. Lucky you. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, he had had two angles to go for. One stung him because it just reinforced the pattern. And the other was like, well, shit, I guess that does make sense, right? Like, why? Yeah, I, Why wouldn't you use it as a lever? And it's funny because you and I had a conversation, I think the day that he actually was found guilty, and you had said, I'm so glad, you know, the, you know he tried to, he, he, he got me up there and he, and he tried to come after me. He's like, but, but I, I was awesome and I deflected. And you, you said something like that. I mean, I'm, I, I'm paraphrasing totally, but I remember how proud you were. <laughs> I mean, it was because at the time I was so amped and adrenalized that I was like, Man, this guy is, you know, this big, high-powered attorney, and he got nothing. But the other thing that I thought was funny, because, you know, you were right. Like you said, it's nothing like the movies, and it's really slow and arduous. The one point that was like the movies, though, where he was like, well, isn't it true that the only reason you went to the police is because Adam, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, and I was just so, you know, monotone. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like, just this big, huge buildup. Like, I'm supposed to get a reaction out of it. And I'm like... That's exactly why I went to the police, because I knew somebody else had gone to the police. I found some of his courtroom theatrics to be so wild and extreme. At one point, I looked at the judge. I looked at Judge Lombardo out, and I'm like, can you help me out here? He's, notes! You have notes! You know, your honor, you know. And he's screaming, like, and he's he's looking around to see who's watching him. Um, I found him <laughs> right, right. Like it's Dorothy Tucker. Like that's it. <laughs> so, um, it's pretty wild. Um, I'm, I'm so thankful that you took the time that you had the guts, the gall to be another act victim. You know, I don't know if they gave you a choice or not, but, uh, I'm, well, I'm no, they did hundred percent. It was, it was, I mean, those, those are voluntary. I don't think, I mean, I guess they can subpoena you for it, but I don't know that anybody was subpoenaed. I think most people probably just said, yeah, sure. I, I do wish that I would have gone the next day though. Cause like when I found out that bond was revoked and that, you know, they just, you know, put the hammer down right there and he got cuffed and walked out. I was like, man, that would have just been so great to see. And then for the sentencing, you know, I got to see the pictures, like, you described it. I mean, I, if you didn't, if somebody didn't have like the name underneath that photo, I would have been like, well, when is the Rick Dugo one shown up? He was a transformationally different person. You know, the gray hair, he looked like he aged 10 years. He just looked so defeated. Um, And and not that you wish anybody bad. Like I didn't, I didn't necessarily like him. First of all, he's a father, right? I didn't want that for his kids. I didn't, there's so many things I didn't, you know, want, but at the end of the day, this guy's got to be taken off the streets. He's got to be taken out of circulation. So there was a level of satisfaction there, you know, but you know, it, it feels wrong to sort of wallow in somebody knowing that their freedom is gone. But if anybody deserved it, it was him. 
I'm wallowing in it. I feel fantastic. And seeing him defeated, uh, just it, it, I know this probably sounds wrong, but it, it makes me feel better because he's. You also put in a lot of work. Well, but. That that wasn't the report. Right. Yeah. Put in a lot of work. Yeah, uh, but uh, but so did you. I mean, everybody that has been involved, whether it's in the background, silent, or, you know, we have confidants, we have spotters, we have people within the community paying attention, and you had all these victims. But, like, really, there's only a few of us that actually got up there and faced them. So I just want to touch on something really quickly and go back to your time on the stand as you're, as you're sitting there and you're, you know, you're, um, you're being asked these questions. Did you look at Rick at that time? Well, you got to remember, I was asked to identify him. So I'm sure you were too. Yeah. And and it was, hey, you know, can you identify an article of clothing? And the confidence in which Rick opened his coat to make it clear, you know, his shirt and the color of his tie. You know, he looked right at me. And I was like, yeah, he's sitting right over there, you know, whatever, light blue shirt, purple tie, whatever it was. I don't recall exactly. You know, it was just like the arrogance was still there. Like on that day, the day before his bond would be revoked, that air was still in the balloon, man. Like it was full. Like it wasn't anything about him that looked scared or threatened or, you know, I, he did not know it was coming 24 hours later. Zero chance. Yeah, I, I don't think any of us, like, really, I, you know, normally there's a pause. Normally a judge takes a couple days to, to come up with a decision. There's For surely he had no idea, but it was always the Rick Dugo that was going to beat the case. It was always the Rick Dugo that would never be arrested. The, always the Rick Dugo that this is a lie and that's why I have attorneys, you know. Um, and at a minimum, there would be days, right? Days of freedom, he thought. He was going to be going home that next day, no matter what, for some period of days. I think those days that were taken away were sweeter than the four years or the three and change that he'll have to spend in prison. The fact that he genuinely thought, you know, he was going to get to go home and at least kind of, you know, hug his wife and kids or whatever. And then that was taken away. That's that's where I'll wallow it. Because... He needed to feel a gutting defeat, and that was sweet. I, I, he absolutely felt defeated. He was gutted. He was shaking. Um, and, you know, I also, Scott, think it's interesting. I mean, there was nobody for his side in the courtroom. I mean, I mean, didn't, didn't that kind of, like, stand out to you as being, like, odd? You know, like, guys, you know, he's facing the first of many tr- felony trials, his sister isn't there. His wife isn't there. And there's nobody in his corner, you know? Um, it's it's lonely when you do that kind of stuff to people. Um, it didn't strike me because I genuinely didn't expect anybody to be there. I, I, I felt like this is a guy who made a living on burning bridges. And it had to have a very adverse impact on his family. And I, I just, you know... I didn't know what you necessarily knew about the relationship with the sister and others. My gut instinct was there was not going to be anybody in that courtroom because it was such a damning, first of all, it was the first of three cases, you know, so even if he somehow got off the one, he'd have to face two more, which that whole severing theory, uh, again, if this was the best defense attorney around, like, 
he sure seemed to make a lot of mistakes. I thought that I thought the same with having a bench trial versus a jury trial. You know, he's Absolutely. he's he's slick Rick. I mean, he could easily have these these jurors be enamored by his looks, his size, you know, his 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 blue eyes, you know, like I'm not trying to make him seem like he's like a legend, but I mean, he enamored all of us, you know? I mean, at least like the people, a lot of the victims that I've talked to, they all found something in, in him that was like a, a certain sort of magnetism, you know? Um, Listen, at least in a first impression. You yeah. Know, if you, it, you know, obviously once you got to know him a little bit, like that quickly turned the other way in a hurry. But to your point, on a first impression, which a jury, you know, they only got to see him for a few days. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. That could have played in his favor. And so you thought severing the cases was a mistake as well? Absolutely it was. Now you got to take three swings? Like, I, I just didn't understand. Again, it's easy for me to say, Monday morning quarterback. And it obviously worked out the way we wanted it to. But, I mean, now you got to win three times. I, I just didn't understand that. But I, maybe the idea was if we string this out long enough, you know, the judge is going to just say, this is nuts. It's, it's clogging up the docket. You know, we're going to just look for an aggressive plea deal. And maybe the hope was that he'd get off on probation. Yeah, it was That's actually the only thing I can think of. And it was potentially four. It was four trials because you had um, the last one. I don't want to say names, but there was the last trial. Yeah. Uh, I call him Lou in the podcast. His trial would have probably come up second. Um, there was a couple of the trials. I don't think the evidence was as strong, um, or they maybe had some reservations about um, some things. But um, definitely, I thought it was um, a mistake on on both of those: the severing as well as bench versus jury. I thought both of those were mistakes, and um, I'm with you. I can't understand why any defense attorney would. Uh, guide them that way or guide Rick that way. But, you know, again, to our advantage, we had other acts motion approved. Um, you know, we had uh, the severing of cases, which was their idea, the the defenses, as well as uh, a bench trial. Um, it just worked out, you know. So let's just finish up um, with, with let's, let's talk about when you find out that he's remanded, let's go back into that piece. You know, you find out he's been remanded. You find out he's he's in jail. How do you feel? I mean, honestly, it was it was great. You know, I more than anything, it was getting to see the Dorothy Tucker story that you helped you know get put together and. I don't want to name the names, but the, you know, the person who lost like $600,000, I just kept thinking, and there were many more, right? So many more people. And then people who were never even probably named in the podcast. And I just kept thinking, what the sense of satisfaction they must have. Like, they will not get back what was taken away. But this has to give them some sense of solace and relief that this guy finally, you know, didn't get away with it. Um, it, 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 I, you know, like I said, I don't take pride in in seeing somebody's misfortune. It's just never, you know. But but to know that it was the end of that sort of systemic pattern of of ruining people's lives, 
You know, my view was this guy has to be taken out of circulation. And so even when he gets out, you know, which is going to be sooner than it should be because he really should never be out. There's going to be so many eyes on him and, you know, it's going to be so much more difficult for him to get away with. Like maybe he moves to Alaska and he thinks he can, you know, find a, a fresh crop, you know, to go after. But I mean, his life is going to be fundamentally changed and he is going to be a very old man uh, from a, what prison is going to do to him perspective. We saw what 30 days did to him. I can't imagine what three years is going to do to him. So, you know, it, I do feel, you know, a sense of satisfaction that his, his ways of, of, you know, ruining people's lives should be over. It's really well said. Um, is there anything that uh, I didn't touch on? Anything you want to say? You know? There's one last thing I got to say, just because I feel like you, you sell yourself short on this. I was involved in a startup company. I've been in leadership positions in different companies. And you're selling yourself way short. I know how difficult it is to start something from zero. And I've had my share of experiences trying to start something from zero and saying, this, this is too much. And I'm not going to, you know, throw anything, throw any further effort at this. It's just not worth it. Um, you never did that. Like you just kept saying it. And so I don't know that you really did it as a hobby. Man. I think you really, you took it with a sense of passion and purpose and you saw it through despite tons of headwinds coming at you. So, you know, I think myself and others probably would have just looked at that and said, you know, if I can't do this small thing, like go sit in a witness chair for a couple hours after all the work you put in, I mean, that doesn't say a lot about us if we weren't willing to do that. So I, I will just say, don't sell yourself short. What you did was incredible. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll just be very direct. Like I didn't have a whole lot of interest in the story or the case or any of it. I just wanted to let it go. And, you know, you kept it alive and I sort of followed it from afar because I wanted to see you succeed. And even when the podcast came out, I'm like, I already know this story. Like, maybe I'll listen to it. Maybe I won't. And then, you know, I started listening to it. I'm like, fuck, man, this guy really went after it. Um, I don't know. So I thought it was really not just about a true crime podcast or about the story, but about like what somebody can do if they really set their mind to it. I hope it didn't take too big of a strain on you mentally. I know you talked about some of the periods where, you know, you weren't eating and, you know, I think we all can identify with, you know, darkness and, and when things get rough and it's hard to kind of see the other side of it. But if nothing else, you know, if there's a positive lesson to be taken out of it is, you know, if you're going through hell, keep on going. And um, I kind of feel like that's exactly what you did and just said, fuck it, I'm not going to lose. And uh, I love that. So I thought it was an incredible just sort of personal saga. I, I think of it more as your story than I do Rick's story because fuck him, why should he get any more recognition um, other than just being known for, you know, not being somebody to get involved with. But um, yeah, nothing but props. I, I say that with sincerity. I, you've left me speechless um i really appreciate that um i it, it's a it's definitely a weird it's weird to be sitting in my chair today because um 
I'm on the other end of it. And I think a lot of people that do reach out that have been fond of the podcast and, and the story that, 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 that all of us cumulatively have been able to tell is that I'm on the other end of it now. This is a victory lap for, for all of us. Um, and it's, it's more of that. I think what you said, um, I really liked, you know, it's a story of personal perseverance and, and not giving up. I made promises to my kids, Scott. I told them I would not stop until justice was served. I was, I was going to right the wrong and make sure that I saw this through. I wasn't going to give up, you know, and, and you're right. There were a lot of things that happened along the way, but, you know, we have the, the, the power, um, to overcome objections. We have the power to overcome roadblocks and stumbles. And there were a lot of stumbles, but cumulatively as a group, we all came together. Um, you've got victims, you've got, you know, you've got detectives and prosecutors and, you know, law enforcement and these just, just so many different people that helped. And, you know, this literally did take a village to take this man down. This is not a, this is not a me story. Like it is a, this is everybody's story because there were so many different people that lended help and assistance along the way. So, you know, you've got a. You tell it your way, I'll tell it my yeah. way. Yeah. Get more ears because you got a podcast. Yeah. I'll, I'll <laughs> agree to disagree. I love what you said. You like kind of brought me to tears. Um, I, it, it's. It's been a. It, it, it's been an interesting. It's been an interesting five years, but. Um, you know, I, I'm going to tell you this straight up, you know, meeting you at Starbucks that day, you confided in me with everything you had um, had accomplished and, and the things that you were doing in the background. You know, you've always been supportive. I'm super thankful. Um, I hope that you always know that you have a friend in me, somebody that's reliable, somebody that will always keep you and, you know, your, your, your name safe. Um, because that's what we had, you know. I didn't have to talk to you every couple months. I didn't have to talk to you every six months, maybe once a year. But, you know, I think we'll always share a commonality that we were some of the few that got to face him and take him down. So um, I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. Well, it pleasure's been mine. Thanks for all you've done. listening in to In the Victim's Voices. We just wrapped up Scott's two-part story of being conned by Ricky Dugo. Scott is called to the witness stand and provides his detailed account in the case of the state of Illinois versus Ricky Dugo. I am forever grateful that Scott had the courage to not only reach out to me in the summer of 2018, but also for standing up for all of the victims 
as he recounted his nightmare as one of the other act witnesses and testified against Ricky Dugo. On the next episode of To Catch a Con Man, we will head to the Lake of the Ozarks, where Ricky Dugo loved to spend the summers, showing off his 46-foot offshore cigarette boat and scamming victims down there for over $2 million. You will meet a guy that was introduced to me as someone I should contact just before I went into Lake County and provided them with my detailed Dugo file. 